This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Nobody likes to redo work. It can be drudgery and it can be discouraging. That certainly is the case for writers when they reach a moment in their book writing journey when they realize that their thinking is evolving. That happens with writing. Your thinking evolves and your writing must evolve with it. Today, Dave and I are going to talk about why and when your thinking changes, what to do when it does, and why you should feel hopeful rather than discouraged when you are forced to rewrite. I'm really excited about this topic, but first, Dave, before we dig into the topic, I want to ask you, as I do every week, what have you made progress on this past week? This week, I just wrote a handwritten note to someone to whom I should, been, I should have written this note probably 30-some years ago. And the reason why is that this last week, it was my birthday, and as always, I receive a card from a woman that I had met probably, gosh, 30 or 35 years ago. I worked uh, as a youth leader in a church for a couple years, and her daughter was in the youth group. And I became fast friends with her and her husband and her daughter, Jenny, uh, who had was kind of a, I don't know if the word is troubled, that's not word probably not. She wasn't fully troubled, not a troubled child, but uh, she had probably a hard teenage uh, experience, let's put it that way. And, but through the years, the mom just kept sending me birthday cards and, and they're just really warm and updated on what she and her husband are doing. And they moved from Colorado, which is where I was living at the time to now in Palm Desert, California. And so when I got the card, I just was reminded about the power of staying in touch, the power of a handwritten card. And, and so today I just sat down and I thought, you know what, I've got to put Judy's name into my little database and I have got to write her a note today, or it will be one more year from now and I still will not have done it. So I, that's what I did today. I even walked to the post office and dropped it in the mail. So to me, that's progress. It's progress in a really wonderful way. And, and uh, you know, Judy just that, that card just brought so much joy to me, just the remembrance of her and what she said in the card, and it's wonderful. Well, first, happy birthday. Are you going to tell us how old you are? <laughs> no, I'm not. No. All right. I'm not going to do that. Okay, I will <laughs> that I hurts. <laughs> Okay, how about you? No, I want to ask ahead. you first, what, what do you think she gets out of sending you these handwritten notes or what prompts her what what makes her do you think want to do that what makes her keep on doing it year after year I wonder I think that is a great question and why she's done it for me I think that she and her husband felt very connected to me as they were trying to raise their daughter and she uh, was adopted and he was a big wig with one of the big three accounting firms, I think Deloitte and Touche or something like that. And, 
And I think there was just this connection of they were at this vulnerable moment as parents. And I think there was just this sense of uh, appreciation. That's how I, I'm interpreting it. So I think every year when she writes that card, one, it's probably some discipline that she, I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, that she does this for, but it's probably some discipline. But when she does it, she probably reconnects back to that time. I would imagine, don't you think? It's got to be something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's so rare to receive notes in the mail. I have a friend who's exceptional at that. She writes notes to everyone, but you feel so special when somebody actually takes the time to write a note, get the stamp and put it on and take it to the mailbox like you did today. I think it's such an act of love, like you mean something to this person. So I'm sure it was a remembrance of how meaningful you are to their family. So that's so cool. Well, how about you? So what's your progress this week? Well, last week I mentioned how my son had roped me into reading poetry that he is studying in his British liter literature, specifically British poetry class. And it's funny because a lot of the poets have actually not been Brits. Like this week he read Yeats and he is an Irish poet. <laughs> but man, I have really, really enjoyed digging into poetry again. And I always preferred poetry over novels and even short stories when I was in graduate school and even as an undergrad because they're so packed um, with, with language that every single word is doing something. We talk with our writers about this in even their book writing that every word you choose has to be doing something and poets are, are great at that. So it's been really fun to to unpack these poems. It's a huge mental exercise for me. I have to tap into a side of my brain that I'm not used to using and doing a lot of looking up of historical things and literary illusions. So it's been, it's been really fun. And they're just, they're just some really beautiful words out there. My favorite one was The Lake Isle of Innisfree by William Butler Yeats. And I'd recommend anybody go read it. It's one of his more accessible poems and it's really, really beautiful. So you say that poems are like puzzles. They are like puzzles because you have not only just the meter and the form, which most poets really think about when they write a poem. They think what would be the best meter, what would be the best rhyme scheme for conveying what um, I want to say in this poem. And even the inversion of words, we talk a lot about this in writing, how they put a word at the beginning or at the end or in the middle of the word, the way that they place words is really important for accent or to draw the reader into a specific feeling or even specific meaning. So for me, it's always like these, these, these poets are putting things together in a way and because they don't have much space to do it, they have to really think through how they're gonna be most effective. So for me, it's like, you know, trying to take apart the puzzle and then put it back together. <laughs> That's great. I've never really thought about that in terms of, I've never thought of poems as puzzles, but I've not spent much time at all. I mean, I do like Mary Oliver and, and uh, I do like uh, some of her poems and I, I've read a lot of poems, but uh, I just have never analyzed poems. So that's really, really great. Yeah, it's been fun. So that is huge progress for me just to be reading poetry. Again, I don't typically you know, stretch my arm out to a poetry book for, for just light reading because it typically is pretty meaty and hard um, reading. So it's good to do it with Davos. It's been fun to bond over. 
So that brings us to the episode. Let's talk about when writers are forced to think differently about their topic. You get to this moment when you're writing where suddenly what you thought you were going to write changes and it's a really frightening moment. So what would our first bit of advice or encouragement be to authors when they realize that, uh-oh, my thinking is changing? I, I do think it's frightening. And I think um, there's a moment where you feel really, really lost. And so many uh, moments along the way, you feel like giving up. And this is one where you go, you know what? I've come all this way and now I realize that my idea doesn't work anymore or it doesn't work in the way I thought it was going to work or you run into a dead end or um, you have another insight about the book. And so I, I would say that the emotion is real. And so I think one of the first things we should just talk about is our thinking should change as we write. And there's that cliche, I, I don't know if it's a cliche, but, uh, and I forget who said this, uh, it's been said by so many writers, but over the course of your project, to think is to write and to write is to think. So your, your thinking is going to change. I would say it's almost a red flag to me if someone starts a project and their thinking doesn't evolve. And I should say their writing doesn't involve, it would make me wonder whether or not their thinking has really evolved. What do you yeah, think? That's a, that's a great insight. I, I do think that when you're writing and thinking, you have to lean into things that you've never thought of before. And that's what makes your book different from what has already existed if you're writing, especially on a topic that has already been um, tackled by other authors. So you gotta really lean into the nuances and really stretch yourself to think in fresh ways. And so, yeah, if you go into it with this idea of it's going to be this um, and it just stays like that, then yeah, I think you're probably not thinking um, as much as you probably should be. So there's this, there are these times when your thinking does start to shift, but first, what are the ways that things come undone. So I can think of like, sometimes it's just the structure comes a little bit undone and you have to add in a chapter and take out a, out a chapter. But sometimes there are bigger issues where the thesis of your book changes. And one of the pieces of advice we always give those who are writing books is to spend the time to work on your book thesis. And that might feel like slowing down, um, but I can't tell you almost every problem that we, had, we end up trying to solve or help with an author comes back to he or she, two things usually, right? One is he or she doesn't know um, what the thesis of the book, it's not clear in his or her mind. The second one is he or she is not clear on the reader. And we just had a, a call today with someone with whom we're coaching on who is the ideal reader. Now, this author has a good idea who the reader is, but when we were doing a light editing of, of the first three chapters, we realized that there were some sections in which the content was directed to a different audience, a different reader. And so sometimes I think um, those are the two things that I think can really trip you up. So I think you get lost sometimes if you forget who the real reader is and you get lost also when that thesis, you're not clear on it or it changes in, in some dramatic way. 
we've had a couple of recent podcasts and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them if you haven't with Amy Davies and also Jim Morris. And they both talk about moments when they focused their readership. They had this general readership and then they realized, oh, this book would be much better if I focused it on a very specific reader. And that was scary for both of them, but, and they had to go back and do some rewriting, but it made their books better in the long run. So just so you know, you're in good company and that, that will happen. But you, often we say that the more narrow your audience, the more specific your topic, the more interesting it is broadly. We just told somebody that today, I think, Dave, do you remember that? We all tend to want to do this. We want to write in general terms because we have this idea that our book is going to be a mass audience book and we want it for every possible reader. And that's actually the worst way to write a book. The one story I remember was the Amy Davies story when she had written a good chunk of her book and she submitted it to her publisher and the publisher came back and said, I don't think that's quite right. And she had to almost start over. Yeah. And she talked about that moment and how it was, it was pretty bracing, I think, but she did it and wrote this tremendous book as a result. Do you think that your, your thinking changes the longer you're engrossed in a writing project? Do you think that that's safe to say? Do you think that your thinking is less likely to change if you, you hurry out the book? And what is the danger of that, of hurrying out a book? And maybe what are the benefits of that? What are the benefits of not agonizing over every word and trying to think, is this the best way to say it? Do I need to change this? That is really a good question because I think you and I both can come up with examples of people who had a deadline. Like I have to get this book written in a year because there was something pressing, like the publisher demanded it. So for example, if you, uh, if you have a, a traditional publisher the publisher will give you a date, right? You have to have the first draft in by this, this, and those dates are pretty hard, fast. And so that often will, you know, that will focus the mind like you would not believe. So there's a sense in which if you have a strong deadline, uh, maybe you have, you're writing a business book and there's some pressure for you to get this book out to help promote the business. I sometimes think that you might, that thesis might change less. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, proposing this. I don't know that this is true, but let's do this. Those that are, that are saying, I'm, I'm working on a book project and it takes them 10 years. Like it did me with death by suburb. Yeah, right. um, it was a long haul. It wasn't. And I had so many stops and starts that idea changed a lot. I, I was writing about the suburbs and I, there's no doubt that I was writing about the suburbs, but I didn't really know how to, what I was going to hang that book on. What was the angle? You know, and so eventually I came up with the eight toxins and which was a great hook for the topic. But uh, you raise a good question that sometimes if you're someone who says, well, I'm working on this book and I don't really have a deadline, I'm just going to be working on it. You might struggle more with that idea changing as you because you're always doing more research. And as you do that, your ideas tend to expand and contract. And so I, I just wonder, I don't know that it's true, but I wonder if you don't have a hard deadline and when you want to get this book done, that book just can languish, I think, and sometimes maybe unnecessarily so. That's what I was going to ask you your opinion on. Sometimes people don't 
kick the book out the door, <laughs> so to speak. And they like the idea that they're continuing to change it and work on it because their ideas are evolving. But there's a point at which your ideas really aren't evolving that much. And you're just delaying maybe getting it out the door because you're afraid of releasing it into the world. You're afraid about the feedback that you may get once it's out there. Maybe you'll feel like you could have always done more if you release it. But there's a point at which your small changes and your small thinking, your small changes in thinking really aren't going to change your book that much. Would you agree with that, Dave? I, I do. I think, uh, well, I do agree with it. And I think you're, you're fiddling at that point. Right. And, and you're delaying. Sometimes it's just procrastination. And there is something really wonderful about this idea of a deadline. Yeah. And what, I think it focuses the mind wonderfully. What do you think the difference is between fiddling and new thinking? I wonder what is that difference? Because lots of people I think fiddle, like, like they, they say I, I'm rewriting my book, but they're just really fiddling versus really they, dealing with structural yeah. changes or um, thematic thesis changes. If you're not adding substantive sections, for example, with Death by Suburb, I remembered at one point, oh, I'm missing a chapter here. I had, so I had to actually create, I had chapter one, chapter two, and what I thought was going to be chapter three, and I had almost the entire book written, I realized I'm missing the real chapter three, because chapter three really should be chapter four. So there were, and I had half of that new chapter in chapter two, and so that was a substantive change, adding in a chapter in the middle of that book. And that really shaped some of the rest of the chapters. I had to go back and tweak some of the chapters because some of the content I, I had reiterated in some of the later chapters. So, um, so that's substantive. I think adding chapters is a substantive thing. I think adding new stories, one of the things that uh, my editor asked me to do was to add, well, to cut some stories that were in some of the chapters and add new stories because the chapters, I, excuse me, the stories I had were not relevant to my audience. They were for an older audience. And so I think that's all substantive stuff and stuff you need to be working on. But then there's the fiddling that you talk about. And that can often go under this idea that somehow you're crafting the language and, and, and no doubt that's important. But I think once you start fiddling, you're changing things that aren't that substantive and it's mostly sentences and, and maybe you're changing some subheads. Um, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's when you're just kind of wordsmithing, but you're not idea smithing, <laughs> maybe to coin a different word. You're not really shaping new ideas. You're just kind of fiddling with, with the words and the sentences. I think that's so true. You mentioned that you got this feedback from your, your publisher, your editor, and that's when things started to come undone. It's the great undoing. <laughs> you had to, you know, take out stories and put in new stories and take out some paragraphs because now you were stating it in an earlier chapter. So this is when often our thinking shifts is when you get that initial feedback from a reader. Um, and that's why I think you need to get feedback from a reader early on with those first two to three chapters, especially that thesis chapter, you need to get your ideal reader reading that so that, that you can get a good sense if you're on the right track or not. 
I think it needs to be that ideal reader. It shouldn't be your 18 year old daughter. Right. Who, who loves everything you do, nor your mom. And, and I do think the earlier you get feedback from the ideal reader, the, I think the book will go a lot more smoothly. You'll have more changes earlier and probably fewer changes later on as you write the book. And your ideal reader is going to be able to point out areas that you're just missing or things that would be interesting to your ideal reader, your ideal audience that you just totally missed. So yeah, getting those things earlier in the process will help you later on rather than you write six or eight chapters and then you go get the feedback and uh-oh, <laughs> I went down a totally wrong path here and this isn't connecting with my reader at all. Again, feedback sometimes is, is cruel, right? It feels cruel. <laughs> But I do think that, again, the earlier you have that, the earlier in the process you have really strong feedback and not just one reader. I think you need three to five people that should be reading that manuscript, at least three. Um, and they need to be your ideal reader. People you think are the, are the men and women who will be buying that book. You mentioned this already, but I think it's worth repeating that one way to keep yourself from having to do tremendous amounts of rewriting throughout the process of writing your book is to start out with that thesis as we discussed and also to really grapple with the structure early on. Somebody in our road trippers group, she wrote two, two chapters and then she's just started to think, okay, maybe my current structure isn't really working. And so she got all these post-it notes and just started to kind of think about the structure of the book. And I think that that's so smart. When you get into the writing process early on, take a step back and see if your structure still holds together. She had an initial structure, but it started to come undone. And so she quit the writing and then reconceived the structure. And I think that takes a lot of discipline and it can slow you down in the moment, but I think it will save you time in the long run. Both the idea of stopping to make sure your idea is solid and still clear, but also what you're saying, which is the more you write, the thing I think that we forget about is when we're writing, we're creating things that are new that have never been said before, meaning you've never said them before. The moment you start to get that stuff out of your head, it's new. And so that new, all of a sudden, unstitches all of the ideas you had about how it was going to flow. So I think structure is one of those big things. I want to circle back to the idea itself of the book and how important that is. We are working with uh, an organization and the CEO and uh, actually there's really two people, two, three people that are working on this project. And we took a year off from the project because of, of the pandemic and they wanted to pick the, the project up again. And in that intervening year, the idea of the book changed, the subject of the book changed. And so that's the big change. And, and, and one of the main ideas of the book is, well, the main idea of the book is now a sub theme to a different topic that was before a sub theme. So actually, just to give you an example. So before the book was about purpose and leadership, the topic of leadership was a sub theme of the larger topic of purpose, how to create purpose through leadership in your organization. Now it's switched. The book is now about leadership and purpose is a sub theme that changes 
everything. And so you have to be willing to lean into that. When that happens, you just have to say, oh, that's what I really want to talk about. And how do I invert that? And how do I now rewrite this based on what that main idea is really about? Right. And that's going to take some processing, maybe some just jotting down ideas in an informal way with this this client will do some interviewing to try to really get at the heart of what they want to say. So it may take you all the way back to the drawing board where you have to really think through your ideas in a fresh way. That was an example, Dave, of how time actually creates space for thinking to develop, right? So you talked about how deadlines can be great and that can um, um, contract the time that you have to for things to really change. And there's good in that. You're not, you know, wordsmithing to death and changing things just for changing things. But you also then have this time to really reflect. And I, again, there's that benefit. There's the give and take of having a short period and a long period to think through your ideas for your book. And that was an example of somebody who took a year off and their ideas completely changed. <laughs> I really like the fact that we're living in that tension. It, the tension is sometimes short, having a shorter period of time and a deadline really focuses the mind. And at the same time, it can really help you if you have an extended time because your ideas are still so nascent, right? They're still so barely formed. And that time enables those ideas to really crystallize. I think though that the key for whatever world you're living in is to get that feedback and to have that thesis and to that will help, I think, eliminate the big turnaround at the end when things really come undone and you have to start, you know, everything comes undone. If you can get feedback early on, if you have that thesis early on, um, that's gonna help with the writing process. Basically that means what am I writing about? And what am I saying about what I'm writing about? That's your subject and your compliment. What am I writing about and what am I going to say about what I'm writing about? If you can get clear on those two things, that, that really is your North Star for any book that you're writing. I think also what we want to encourage people in this moment with is that emotionally it is tough when you get that feedback, say it's from a publisher, an editor, your ideal reader, and you realize, oh man, I've got to rewrite this. And, or you get a line edit like we did for, for somebody recently. And this notion that they have to go back and rethink some things, that's an emotionally crushing moment. And I think you just need to expect that and not feel totally alone in it. Other people, if you're a writer, you're gonna go through it and other writers have been through it before you. So just manage your expectations that this is a reality. You're changing will think. You're going to have to do some rewriting if your book is going to be any good. That is a good word. And it's encouraging to know that other writers are going through. I mean, that's why we have, that's why we have Road Trippers, which is our writing caravan, our community of writers. Uh, we meet every week. And the purpose of that is, is really to support each other as we go through these kind of dark nights of the soul in our writing. And so emotionally, I think expecting it is really important. And I think knowing that when you hit that wall, that it's okay to maybe curl up in the fetal position for a while, <laughs> but, but maybe the final point here is to stay the course. And I think there's a lot of ways to stay the course um, as you're writing. One is just 
reading other writers on writing. And the moment you start doing that, you realize you are not alone. And what you're going through is something that everybody is going through. Right. Wasn't it Stephen King who said something like it often when you're writing a book, it just feels like you're shoveling crap from the seated position. So it's just hard work. And the best writer, Stephen King, a best selling novelist and a nonfiction writer, it is just hard work. And so if you hear from these writers who achieved great success say it's difficult. Some days you don't want to do it. Some days you want to throw your manuscript away and never see it again. Then you're in good company. I don't know other any other process, right? That is the creative process. Just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing it. And we have several uh, people that are in our, either our writing groups or that we've worked with over the last four or five years. There are a couple of people that I think, you know, you just need to get after it. You know, you've got a great idea and you need to continue the journey. Stay with it. Stay the course. And, and it's a little bit like child rearing, I think, when you have a stretch where your, your adolescent is not the person and beautiful elementary child that he or she was. You know how it is. Um, and you just have to stay the course. You just have to stay the course. That is a great word to end on. I'm... I'm going to hold on to that for my own writing projects and you too, Dave, as you think about future writing projects. And I hope our listeners today, especially those who are discouraged, will stay the course, get some encouragement from other people, other writers who have been there and done that, and then just get back at it, even if it doesn't feel like you're doing much. All right, let's turn to our words of the episode. This may be my favorite part of our episode, besides talking with you, which is always fun, but we get it. that's funny yeah so I'll share my word and it's it's one that I had used in an introduction for a previous um, podcast and Dave said I don't know that word and so I took it out because I, I couldn't figure out how to explain it in the introduction so I thought I would share it today and the word is portmanteau a word or morpheme whose form and meaning are derived from a blending of two or more distinct forms, such as smog is from smoke or fog. And in recent years, it got a lot of publicity when movies like Sharknado came out, which is like a shark attack. There's like a, a, a catastrophe. Sharknado is one. So shark and tornado are combined. Jim Morris, who we talked about in this episode, um, we interviewed him in our last episode. His book is called Badvertising, and that is the word bad combined with advertising. So it's bad advertising. That's a portmanteau. But there are lots of words that you'd be familiar with from from the poem Jabberwocky from Lewis Carroll. And I've been listening to this poem a day podcast, and he recited this poem. And so here are a few portmanteaus from that poem chortled, which is a combination of chuckle and snort, frab joys, a blend of fair, fabulous, and joyous, frumious, a combination of fuming and furious. So they're just fun words. um, And I bet you'll start seeing them in your everyday now, portmanteau. What about you, Dave? What's your word of the episode? Well, let's just stop here. I, again, I'm always so amazed at you're thinking and and this is really uh, so now I know what a portmanteau how do you say a portmanteau yeah portmanteau so it's a combination are derived from a blending of two or more distinct forms that is so good yeah yeah I mean I've heard of the word but I I don't think I fully understood it like I would have never said sharknado 
is a portmanteau. I wouldn't have known that. Or even bad advertising. I, if you had not said that, I would have not known that. So that's great. That is really great. Okay. So my word of the episode is dappled. Ooh, dappled. So dappled is marked with spots or rounded patches. So it's dappled. So I'm going to read you um, this sentence. It's a long sentence that comes from Mary Oliver, the great poet. And I'm reading her book Upstream. I have been reading. I kind of read it like a like a meditation or devotional. Um, I'll read a paragraph or two. Sometimes I'll read an entire. It's hard for me to read an entire chapter because even though her chapters are short, her reading is so wonderful in many ways, dense, not dense in a bad way, but just maybe rich is the word. So it's like eating too much chocolate cake. It's, Mm. you know, you eat one bike and you go, man, that's, Ooh, that was great, but it's so rich. That's how I feel when I read Mary Oliver. So here's the sentence. So the word is dappled, right? Dappled is, is my word of the episode. And I walk on over the shoulder of summer and down across the red dappled fall. And when it's late winter again, out through the far woodlands of the province lands, maybe another few hundred miles, looking for the owl's nest, yes, of course, and looking at everything else along the way. That's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, words like that move me. So remind me what dappled means, the exact definition, because I use that word, but I wonder if I'm using it incorrectly. It's marked with spots or rounded pat- patches. So, for example, a um, an Appaloosa horse, you know, sometimes its rump has spots on it. So it would be dappled. Yeah. Like, like different colored spots would be dappled. I'm wondering if somebody with freckles would be dappled. Yeah, I wonder so. Yeah, absolutely. I always hear it in dappled light and I can picture that, you know, and that's what she's speaking of here. So, it, yeah, especially in forests, the light kind of comes through in patches when the trees yes. are occluding yeah. the light from coming through. And so there's just little dapples of light. It's It has a lot of movement to it, the word dappled. And so... And I always think of dappled light as kind of having this movement if it's coming through trees because the leaves are moving, which means that the light is kind of moving too. I, I love the word. It's a beautiful word, beautiful sentence. Yeah. We should put some of these up on our um, social media pages. Some of these sentences that were <laughs> we referred to because they're great sentences. I wonder if we should post these on Road Trippers and our Journey 66. Those are, the words are great. Then getting just, Mary Oliver's use of it or the way you use it in a poem or it's just wonderful. It's just, it's a, just a wonderful way to, to expand, not just expand your vocabulary. That's too tactical. It's like, it really enriches your life. Absolutely. It enriches your life. That's what I love about language is that if you can find the right word, it has so much more than just the definition tied to it. There's, there's a deeper meaning with some words that aren't present with more mundane words. That's that's why I love vocabulary words so much. I, I love this, these words of the episode. To end this episode, let's talk a little bit about road trippers. And I'd love to hear where we're at with that, Dave. I mean, I know, but tell our audience about where we're at. <laughs> well, Bliss and I are really determined to create a great uh, experience 
for those of you who are on the same journey, which is book writing or even writing any kind of long form, but primarily book writing. And you need, you want community. You want to be part of a, of a, of a group of people who are struggling with the exact same thing and feel passionate about their work, their book. And so we are creating a, a membership site called Road Trippers. And for $66 a month, you can join and you'll be part of our community. We have all these resources that you'll have. But one of the key pieces is that each week you can participate in our weekly Q&A with the two of us in which Melissa and I answer your questions wherever you're stuck. Um, and we facilitate a conversation among writers that are just like yourself. And, and what I find, I don't know how it, how it is with you, Melissa, but I learned so much from these other writers. That topic we had, I forget, it was Elisa who's talked about, um, she had listened to, uh, or a video or watched a video or something. And she, t there was the writer who talked about layers and how you need to write in layers. And I just thought that was, again, a metaphor very helpful. But again, that came up in our Road Trippers group. So we, if you want to join our weekly Zoom call, it's free right now. You can jump on Facebook, just search for the word Road Trippers. There's several groups and ask to join the group and we'll let you in and we'll give you the link. It's posted each week and you can join our group and see if it's a good fit for you. So we'd love to have you. We would love to have you. We would love it. It's a great group. All right, Dave, I think that's a wrap. You think it's a wrap? <laughs> I think wrap? it's a wrap. I think All it's right. a great it's a wrap. wrap. <laughs> All right, I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.